นโมทัสสะภะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสังวันนี้ถือว่าเป็นวันที่ได้รับการยืนยันอย่างมากมายในหลายๆSixty uh, seventh birthday and uh, lots of very generous and considerate expressions of kindness and appreciation. And uh, from starting the day this morning and our morning breakfast house meeting, and, and then at the meal time, many people turning up, and, and also. Mm. Lots of cards and emails and text messages and really quite a uh, yeah, as I say, very affirming, a quite extraordinary amount of appreciation. That uh, a lot of the time, uh, it's not really what I would expect. I I find being a leader of a renunciate community. Like we have here, a lot of the time I'm just telling people what they shouldn't be doing, and uh, so, no, you can't use the internet, and no, you can't go home for three weeks. You can only go home for two weeks, and why aren't you putting more effort into your chores? And how about paying more attention to your chanting? And you know, why are there so many dead flies on the windowsill? And when I stop and think about it. In fact, not only when I think about it, somebody commented to me recently. It seems like you spend a lot of your time just saying no to people, and that really is true. And and then not just the resident community here, but also at the meal time, and visitors come on, particularly on Saturday and Sunday, and then again on these evening talks. I spend a lot of my time. Telling people how they should be upgrading their precepts and putting more effort into their meditation and and suffering, always going on about suffering and endless talks about suffering and different forms of suffering. And this is definitely not a guru worshiping tradition. We don't Theravadan Buddhism. Thankfully, we don't do a lot of that. And so when I I'm on the receiving end, as today I have been, uh, such generous and and sincere expressions of appreciation. It's it's very moving, very very inspiring, and and certainly kindles a lot of gratitude. And you know, think how how come how come I ended up here, a boy brought up in. A little country town called Moronsville. Well, actually, it's Moronsville. It's not really Moronsville, but it's a little country town in the middle of a drained swamp, and 
the North Island of New Zealand and how did I end up being the abbot of this lovely monastery with these dedicated people sincerely interested in cultivating Dhamma? How did this happen? And the truth is I don't know. I really don't know how something as fortunate as this came about, but I do know that I have tremendous gratitude to be able to share this journey, which is what it is. is there's no experts here. We're all sharing a journey together. And to share this journey of cultivating the path of the Buddha is a, a tremendous privilege. And, and really also, I, I, I notice how much hope it gives me. I, I feel very hopeful. When I listen to people talking about how hopeless life seems, I have to stop and remind myself that not everybody is surrounded by like-minded people who are committed to cultivating Dhamma. And, and there's, a, there's a Dhammapada verse, verse 302, which I was reflecting on earlier today, and it's a, it starts out, the Buddha's talking about how difficult it is. It's difficult to live the life of renunciation. Its challenges are hard to find pleasant. That's true. But then he also goes on to talk about how difficult it is for householders who are surrounded by people who are irresolute, people who've got an aspiration for realization, for cultivating real benefit for themselves and for others and and yet find themselves surrounded by people irresolute and often regrettably disoriented. And so I have to remind myself that it is not always easy. We have a, a world that has tremendous wealth and uh, never have so many people been so affluent, never have so many people been so educated, uh, never has the world been so free from famine and disease and war as it is now. And yet we also have this extraordinary uh, level of confusion and shared anxiety. And, and so that there are so many people, as I was saying, who are committed to the cultivation of goodness, uh, uh, the pursuit of the pursuit of a path of training that leads to the letting go of my way and the realization of the Buddha's way. It takes effort to do this. It takes a lot of effort, and including the effort of like this evening, everybody making the effort to sit still together, silent. Why are we doing that? It's not the same as going to a party or dancing or eating or chatting. Sitting still requires a distinct kind of effort. And why are we doing this? This is the effort of renunciation. And on whatever level we might pitch it, the Buddha encouraged this kind of effort, the effort of renouncing, following our casual concerns in pursuit of something more profound, pursuit of understanding, pursuit of real clarity, real wisdom, real compassion. So that we have each other's company and we can meet like this and 
well, as I was saying today, to be on the receiving end of so much sincere kindness and appreciation as a source of great hope. And I do really value that hope. I think hope is something genuinely worth cultivating. A week or so ago, there was a visitor to the monastery who was pointing out, some of you might have been there, it was in a public situation, and this person had read in a book how hope was just another form of desire and should be let go of. And I listened to what they were saying and considered it, and I really don't agree with that. I, I think if you don't have hope, then there's a good chance what you do have is hopelessness. You know, what hope is, at least as I understand it, is being positively disposed towards the future. It's a positive orientation towards the outcome of our effort. We don't know for sure what's going to happen in the future. We are capable of extrapolating and imagining. And if we're positively oriented towards the outcome of our effort, if we're hopeful, I find that's helpful. I find it's tremendously helpful. So why would this person be suggesting that hope is unhelpful? risking falling into hopelessness or, or depriving themselves of so much wholesome, helpful energy. Well, I think what it comes down to is the condition of hope without mindfulness, hope without restraint, hope without discernment. You know, these spiritual faculties, which you know, you've probably heard me talk about, quite often, mindfulness and restraint and discernment, these faculties, if we don't have them, then a lot of our effort doesn't come to fruition. If we don't have mindfulness, if we don't have restraint, if we don't have discernment, then with hope what we could have is clinging. It could be an egotistical sort of hope, me being hopeful, rather than just being positively disposed towards the outcome of our effort, it could be my way dominating. And and as I was saying, really, this commitment that we all share and benefit from is is letting go of my way and aspiring along the path of the Buddha's way. And that can be nourished, that aspiration can be nourished when we're hopeful. It nourishes commitment. Hope, again, if it's mature hope, if it's hope that's informed by mindfulness and by restraint and by reflection, that hope can give rise to commitment, and commitment is essential. Without, again, without mindfulness, without restraint, without reflection, then we can be clinging to hope, like desire. We think desire is a problem. Desire is not the problem. It's the clinging to desire that's the problem. Personality is not the problem. It's the identification with personality that's the problem. Mm. Letting go of my way is not pretending that I don't exist, not pretending that I don't have a personality, not pretending that I don't have desires. It's not identifying, not becoming. And this is not, again, I need to understand, this is not a philosophy This is something we need to recognize. 
the practice of walking the way of the Buddha is the practice of disciplining attention so we can come to see exactly where and when and how we do what we do that brings about this misidentification. You know, this conventional configuration that we call me, it is what it is, it's like a reflection in the mirror. You get a bee sting and you've got to look in the mirror to see where to put the vinegar on or whatever ointment you're using and you look in the mirror and there's a reflection. Well, that's perfectly normal to have a reflection. But if, if we think the reflection is me and we start putting the vinegar on the mirror, of course, that's, that's kind of crazy. It was very crazy. But in fact, that is what we do with this thing called personality. It's a reflection. It's a configuration. It's a construction that's emerged over the years and out of our sense perceptions. But because we don't really understand it, we haven't really seen it, we misidentify as it, and therefore we suffer. And so all the discipline, all the practices, all the exercises that we're encouraged to cultivate are to bring about the letting go of this misperception. So once again, if we can feel hopeful as we make efforts, it supports, it nourishes commitment. And the commitment sustains us because the letting go of this sense of me is really challenging. Again, as that Dhammapada verse 302 said, it's difficult to find the challenges that renunciation gives us pleasant. It's difficult. This work is difficult. And without commitment, often we just give up. In the other areas of our life, of course, we know this to be true. You like you get inspired to learn Qigong and so somebody teaches you some basic Qigong forms and and then once a month you pull out your smartphone and look at the video of these Qigong exercises and run through them. But once a month is probably well definitely not enough to get very familiar with the Qigong exercise or any other exercise routine if we sign up to the gym and but we only go once every two or three weeks and put in 20 minutes, well, that's not enough commitment and won't bear fruit. Learning a language, you know. Likewise, if we don't commit to repeating it over and over and over again. I remember when I was a, a novice monk in Thailand, I had a tape recording of these Thai sentences that I would repeat over and over and over again. I'm sweeping out my, my room and I'm repeating these sentences because Thai language is tonal. You've got to educate your brain like Chinese language. It's not just one word like the word cow. The word cow in Thai, you know, cow, 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 cow. That's actually a whole bunch of different words. One means news, one means knees, one means come inside. To us, they all sound cow. But, so we've got to cultivate with commitment until the brain gets the message. And then we know when we say cow, it's got to be cow, 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 or we're not going to communicate. So without commitment, we don't communicate. So we know this in other areas of our life. You know, have you ever seen people rubbing two sticks together to get fire? 
You know, an example Ajahn Chah used to often give, you know, just because you get tired, you can't take a break. <laughs> the, of course, the heat disappears, and so you never get fire. So, so on this journey, this path of practice that the Buddha has shown to us, it, it, commitment is essential. And, and commitment is nourished by hopefulness. Commitment sustains us when it really looks like it's impossible. Commitment is like, like in Pali, the word is aditana. Aditana, the, one of the ten forces for transformation. Commitment, resolve, and it sustains us. Sometimes life can just get so unbearably difficult. How do we survive? Well, willpower is probably just going to exhaust us. But if we've got commitment, if we've got this, this spiritual, it's like a spiritual inner strength, inner ability. Again, the, the language, the example of learning a language is, is good. If we've committed to learning it, we've internalized it, we've got it down, and you, you meet somebody who speaks that language and you start communicating, you don't have to start thinking about, well, how was, what's the right tone for saying this sentence in Thai or in Chinese? It's internalized. It's, we've learnt it, really learnt it. But we don't really learn without commitment. So getting back to hopefulness again, I, I'm a great advocate of cultivating a mature form of hopefulness that is informed with mindfulness, with restraint, with discernment. Not naive, personality-centered hopefulness, but mature, cultivated, skillful hopefulness. It also nourishes competence. Commitment leads to competence. Once we learn, once we get a feeling for what it means to commit to doing what we're doing, like with the breathing meditation, it's tempting when we first start doing meditation exercises, whether it's focusing on the breath, sensation or counting the breath or feeling the whole body breathing or listening to the sound of silence or body sweeping, whatever form our meditation practice might take. It's tempting just to let the mind wander and think about the meal we had today or what we're going to do afterwards or checking our phones, letting the mind wander following habits. That's tempting. feels comfortable. But if we do that, then attention never is never potentized. It never becomes intensified, never deepens. Without intensified, focused attention, there's no deepening. For there to be intensified, focused attention, there needs to be commitment. And when we've got that sort of quality of commitment, that intensity, that collectedness of attention, then we start to tune into what competence feels like.
these days. Not everybody grows up with an appreciation or an example of somebody who's truly competent. Regrettably, a lot of people are being casual about everything and there isn't a lot of depth. There isn't a lot of relevance in human conversation. And so people's lives accordingly somehow feel, what's the point? What's the point of all this? We only ask that question, what's the point of all this, if we're not in touch with something really relevant in our lives. Why are we not in touch with that which is truly relevant, that which truly matters? In our heart of hearts we know there are some things that truly matter. We may not even have words for them, but we sense them. And if we're not in touch with them, well then we come out with questions like, well, what's the point? What really matters? Well, with commitment, we start to tune into, see, recognize, sense, competence, perfection, excellence. We have a vision of excellence. Uh, Of course, in the spiritual journey, this image we bow down to of the Buddha, we're not bowing down to graven images and believing that that bronze image has got special powers. Somebody steals it or blows it up, it doesn't make any difference to the Buddha. As it is, it reflects back to us, it reminds us of that which is deeper, that which is relevant, that which we need to know about, like the inner reality of consciousness, the deeper reality of consciousness. Like if you're talking about the ocean, in the depths of the ocean, it's always still and silent. However tumultuous it might be on the surface, in the depths it's always still and silent. And if we don't know the depths, if we don't know the stillness, then we can get thrown around by the waves and get very, very distressed. It's important that we get to know the depths of our hearts and minds, that we get to know the inherent stillness and peacefulness, the potential that we have as human beings. So talking about competence on the spiritual journey, competence is this realization, realization of true contentment. And sometimes we talk about contentment and and it sounds like we're running away from the difficulties of life. We don't want to know that there's this thing called Brexit happening, that the NHS is falling apart, that, that politics and all around the world seems to be in chaos, and the economy, global economy is changing at a rate whereby almost nobody really understands it. Environmental degradation is a real issue. We talk about contentment, and for some people it sounds like we're just pretending these things don't exist. No, that's not the case. That's the waves on the top of the ocean. The contentment that the Buddha wanted us to realize is the contentment that comes with 
recognizing the depths of consciousness, the stillness, the peacefulness, which is there for us potentially to realize. So there's talking about contentment. It's important to recognize that really there are different kinds, or at least there's two kinds, at least two kinds of contentment. One form of contentment is the expression of gratification. When I get what I want, it produces a kind of contentment. And we're all familiar with that. When we get what we want, we're contented momentarily. But we also, of course, all know that that is not going to last forever. And so the contentment the Buddha was pointing towards is unshakable contentment. And unshakable contentment is the expression of wisdom. And wisdom expresses itself as not having to get what we want, which, of course, is definitely different from the first kind of contentment. Why does a wise being not have to get what they want? It's because they know the reality of desire. They know the truth of that wave passing across the ocean. All desires, wholesome desires, welcome desires, unwelcome desires, they're all like waves passing across the surface of the ocean. What the Buddha wants us to understand and why we make this effort to cultivate restraint and renunciation, whether it's as people living the monastic life or as householders, Difficult as it is, the reason we do it is because we want to be able to see beyond the way things appear to be. We don't want to be fooled by the changing conditions. Why did the Buddha encourage us to contemplate change? Yesterday at the meal, somebody asked me that question. They heard the talk that I gave. It was a a memorial dana that was being offered and memory of somebody who had passed away and, and referencing the, some of the Buddha's teachings on anicca, on impermanence. So I was holding up for our consideration together the, these emphasis the Buddha gave on reflecting on impermanence, seeing the changing nature of things, not turning away from it, and afterwards, this, this fellow asked me, he said, well, I don't see the point that reflecting on change makes. You know, what's the point of it? And, you know, there's all these storms now in America, that's change, and I'm getting old and chubby, and that's change, and our house is full of dust, and that's change. And you know, I don't see that thinking about all this does me any good, really. So in conversation, I was pointing out to him, well, that's... That's just the surface level of contemplation. That's the surface level of education. That's the coarse level of contemplation. It's like, again, it's like learning a language. First you've got to learn the very, very basics. You don't aim to have a subtle, refined conversation with somebody as soon as you start learning a foreign language. Or you learning the qigong form. You you don't expect to be proficient immediately. You just 
learn some very basic exercises. And likewise with our contemplation on impermanence, the Buddha encouraged us to notice that the changing seasons, getting old, people dying. Uh, but the point of that is so that when we do have access to inner stillness, to inner quietude, if we exercise the possibility for cultivating tranquility of heart and mind, then in that stillness, in that quietude, sooner or later, something tempting will arise in awareness and we'll be there and see that we've got a choice. We can leave that perspective of open-hearted, open-minded, still awareness, just watching what's happening. We can leave that and then become the condition, become the movement, get caught up, get born as the... If it's a pleasant, tempting thought, then we get pulled into becoming happy. If it's an unpleasant, unwelcome, painful thought or feeling, we get pulled into becoming unhappy. But if we're prepared for it, if there's well-disciplined mindfulness, restraint and discernment, then we realise that we've got a choice. We don't have to leave that perspective of open-hearted, open-minded awareness. We can stay there watching it. We don't have to follow it. We can choose to follow it, but we don't have to follow it. In the beginning, we don't feel like we have any choice. We are, that's what the teachings talk about, being enslaved to the world. So any old thought comes up, we get pulled into it. And, and it can be so painful and so irritating. But with right training, with right practice, we begin to recognize that we have an option. We can also stay still and watch it. Watch it. Watch it until it disappears. And then you see impermanence. Now it's no longer, oh, Anicca, 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 impermanence, changing nature of things. No, that's thinking. That's the course level of contemplation. The point of that is so that when we're in a mode of stillness and increased subtlety, we can see at the point in the time where we need to see that we have a choice. We are the creators of the suffering of our lives. We're the creators of the problems. Mm. We compulsively react and become caught up, but we don't have to do that. We recognize there is a possibility. And that, if we see that, well, once again, there's increased confidence, increased commitment, Increased respect for competence and for developing these skills, moving along the Buddha's path towards realization. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>